Before getting to the sermon today, I wanted to share with you that um, Brent had that sheet of paper with the men. I know that, that um, the ones that are in max security, um, that's a week old. I, I, I failed to get the new ones printed out for you, but I'll try and send those out um, in the email and also on our Facebook page for you. But what's interesting <laughs> is there was a dilemma, and I wanted to pose that dilemma to you, see how you would handle this if you were in this situation. So about two or three weeks ago, I had first mentioned to the chaplain at the max security that we have three men who are wanting to be baptized. And what's interesting about this is we've already baptized, what, 250, 300 uh, men and women at the jail, but this is the first three that we are able to, be, um, to baptize in max security. So that's new territory for us. And what is really interesting is I got word back from the chaplain saying that the baptistry that we had been using um, at the program hall, it had been destroyed. Well, I thought, okay, we, we could probably get that taken care of and get another one, right? Um, but I then get another message from him saying, wait a second, these men are at max security. They're not allowed to transfer from where they are down to the other section of the jail where, we, where the program hall is. We're not going to be able to baptize them. Would you like for me to put them in the shower? How would you handle that? Knowing that we aren't going to do that. We immerse everyone, right? And so does it mean that they don't get baptized until they're released? Knowing that some of them may not get released. They may live the rest of their years um, going to a prison because of their felony charges. And so it's an interesting dilemma. I pose that to you for you to think about. Fortunately for us, Sheriff Hall is very amenable to individuals being immersed. And because of that, with the TPOM organization, we actually have um, a portable baptistry that we can take into the max security and go into the shower and have that filled up and use that. So God has provided a way for us. But not every place in the state of Tennessee, let alone in this country, has that freedom to do that. There are many, many places where individuals won't be baptized because they're simply not allowed to for the reasons of their security. And so I share that with you knowing that we have dilemmas that take place in this country as we try and serve the Lord and try to do things His ways um, that may not be quote-unquote ideal. Fortunately for us, we have that ability, so I'm very grateful for that. Now, as for this sermon, um, when I was coming up with this week's topic, I was actually wanting to depart from the last few weeks because things had been very, very heavy. We have a number of brethren who have come forward and, and asked for prayers or are struggling with their walk with God, and I honestly wanted a change of pace personally. And so that will, depending on what happens this next few days, that will probably be next Sunday. And um, it will be uh, hopefully something uplifting in, uh, in the way of our study of God's word. But because there was a person who had committed suicide and he is well known in the quote unquote Christian community, made national news this week, I'll speak of him in just a minute, I decided to go ahead and, and redo a sermon that I had done what I thought was just two or three years ago on depression. When I went back to my notes, it was over five years ago when Robin Williams committed suicide. And if you remember, 
for those who are young, that's who he is, Robin Williams. For those, me, I, I, when I don't remember his name, I say, Julie Nanu Nanu. Who is that? You know, and so, oh, that's Robin Williams. And so, okay, Mork and Mindy. So back from the 70s, right? Well, it was because of his suicide that if you look at the internet search that took place, this was um, earlier in the year, um, in June and then July, and then toward the end of August when he had committed suicide, it was an instant spike on Google Trends for searches regarding suicide. His death actually brought about a lot of discussion back in 2014. And so uh, from NBC News coming out about depression, uh, Robin Williams' death has sparked wider debate, was another one on the next day. Um, since then, a couple of more widely known celebrities, at least widely known to many people, not me necessarily, but Anthony Bourdain, I only know him because he does jujitsu or used to do jujitsu. And then uh, Kate Spade, I guess she's um, widely known as well. There are a number of others naturally that have committed suicide. In fact, when you look at statistics, it is rather alarming actually in this country and the trends that are taking place. But here's what the reason why I'm preaching on this. Number one, last week was Suicide Prevention Awareness Week. I didn't know there was such a, such a week. And what's interesting is that on Monday of last week, there was a person by the name of Jared Wilson. He used to preach at, I think one is called My Home Church in Nashville, and the other one was in Smyrna called Lifehouse Church, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. He had since moved a few years ago to, um, or a couple of years ago, to California and worked in a very mega church, community church type setting, right? And he was one from when he was here in the Nashville area and as well as in California, really advocated with regard to mental illness issues and specifically with depression because he had said himself that he had been struggling with depression throughout his entire life. He battled with it not only um, from a standpoint of personal dealings with it, but he also battled with it from a therapeutic standpoint by writing books. And he's an author of a number of books. Um, and he founded, well, actually his wife with him founded um, an organization that deals with depression. And so this person dealt with it for a number of years, tries to help other people. In fact, while he was here in Nashville, he came to Franklin to help someone get talked out of suicide. And so this is just part of his, quote, unquote, his ministry with regard to his life. Well, he took his own life, as I said, on Monday. And here is what's interesting about this. This is a book that he wrote called Love is Oxygen. He tweeted this the morning before he took his life. And what's, let me give you a little bit more context. On this particular day, he actually did a funeral. So this is on Monday of last week. He did a funeral for a woman um, whose spouse had taken his life. And so this is fresh on his mind. That same day, he is uh, playing with his son, and, and there's video recording of it. So you talk about the highs and lows within a day for this individual, and this is what he's experiencing. So during this day, he writes this. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure suicidal thoughts. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure depression. 
Loving Jesus doesn't always cure PTSD. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure anxiety. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't offer us companionship and comfort. He always does that. So as far as his words are concerned, I mean, this guy is telling us, you know, just because you are trying to follow Jesus doesn't mean these thoughts of suicide or, or the, the reality of depression and anxiety and PTSD and many other sorts of mental illnesses don't take place. They do. But he offers hope. That he always does. And that's basically the message that he had given before he himself felt like there was no out. And without going into all the nuances of, of his particular case, the reality is that when we, when we talk about depression, you cannot help but talk about suicide. And so I have a sidebar for about two slides that we're going to deal with the, the idea of suicide because it is one that, that trends differently depending on what society you're part of, depending on what part of human history you're talking about. And of course, our part is here in the 21st century in the United States, right, in our modern era where even in the last generation, even the, the whole concept of suicide is even changing and evolving as far as our views toward it. And for some people, it's a good thing. For other people, it's a bad thing. It just depends on who you talk to and their perspectives. So we're going to look at a sidebar issue. But I'm dealing primarily with depression, but I want you to think beyond depression. I want you to, to stop and consider other mental illnesses because as I put in the bulletin and the bulletin was not addressing with mental illnesses it's actually addressing the discussion that we need to have about mental illness okay so it's just a preliminary discussion that was in the bulletin and the whole point of this sermon is to build upon that concept of the article that we begin as Christians to have open communication about mental illness so hopefully that's what this sermon will do for us this morning. So from Jared Wilson's research, and if you go to other people's research, depending on the, the statistics and what have you, and I was going through, I forget how many hundreds of pages of I'm looking at data, and it was just, the material itself is very tedious to look at. But the takeaways from it, um, pretty telling. And so depending on what research you, you look at, you'll get different statements, but it's very obvious. There's a lot of people who are clinically depressed in our country. And according to his statistics, 80% of the 121 million people around the world, if you will, right, 80% don't get any type of treatment. And so we're only talking about clinical depression. We're not even talking about depression that we experience from time to time um, from a seasonal standpoint for some. From a traumatic standpoint, right? So maybe, uh, maybe one of the women gives birth and she has um, postpartum depression. It could be from a whole host of, of reasons for it. But what we're saying is that only 20% are getting treated for clinical dep depression. The number of people diagnosed within depression increases approximately 30% every year. Let that sink in for a second. If, if there's any truth to what is being said in this statement here from his research, that's a staggering number. That from one year to the next year, and the next year to the following year, and the following year to the following year, over the last 
within the last 10 or so years, 30% increase. That's staggering. In, 200, or in 2013, there were approximately 41,000 suicides that had been reported as the 10th leading cause of death in this country. Among teenagers, the second leading cause of death. So this is heavy stuff we're talking about, right? In 2013, according to um, Mr. Wilson's research that he had done, every approximately 13 minutes, someone takes his or her life. I can tell you from personal experience, I've come to know individuals who have taken their lives from my classmates. I specifically remember um, I worked as security in the female dormitory in college. My job was to live with the ladies um, and to protect the ladies from the guys. And on one of these nights, one of the ladies in my dorm had taken her life. I've, I just have too many in my head that I've come to know over the years that have taken their lives. And these are things that are not just numbers, right? We're, there are people that you know, and it affects you in a personal way at times. And so this is someone who I did not know, but many people all around the country knew him, knew his desire of, of what he was trying to do as far as his convictions are concerned. This is what he's sharing um, in his own material that he had. So here's the thing. If we're talking about depression or we're talking about uh, acute anxiety, if we're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder and, and many, many other types of mental illnesses, we've got to at least talk about suicide. And therein lies the big question mark, right? There's a lot of questions that come with suicide. I bet if we were, take the time, and Julie and I spent a, at least one hour yesterday just talking about these questions. It begins to open your mind. It's not just an easy black and white subject matter that I think had been presented as black and white just a generation ago and prior, at least for the last three or four generations in this country. But here's some questions. And notice the way I worded it. Is suicide another unpardonable sin? Because remember the Bible talks about the unpardonable sin, not a unpardonable sin. But yet... Suicide is referred to as an unpardonable sin, which means, is it another one? Something to consider. Can a Christian still be saved even if they commit suicide? Because that goes in line with the first question. Can they? If they are a person who is walking with God, struggles with some mental illness, takes his or her life, would they still be saved? Are Christians exempt from mental illness because they are in Christ? Some of you would say yes, and some of you say no. It's an interesting dichotomy that would actually exist in the body of Christ because of, again, personal views about depression or mental disorder. How about this? Do we legitimize suicide by referring to it as mental illness? Because... You know, if you go back through the dictionaries of years gone by, mental illness was not a term. The terms were much more graphic and much more negative. And if you'll note, the dictionaries have changed over the years if you're going to go through a, an etymological search on it. 
Or how about what can Christians do to help others who struggle with it? And that's the focus, I think, where we need to head personally. For all that these questions are very good questions to sit down and discuss because it will challenge our personal beliefs regarding this subject matter, regarding mental illness in a broader light, that those are important questions. But this last, is, last one is where we find or try to seek solutions. And that's, that's always the mantra that, that we have if we're in Christ, right? Find solutions that bring light, that bring health, that bring uh, life, if you will, salvation or deliverance to souls. And so that's something that maybe we can talk about as we go on. Anyway, I want you to stop and think, first of all, and this is the last point before we move back into our uh, lesson itself. There's different views depending on what parts of the world you go to because different cultures exist and different eras that deal with suicide or what we call suicide. And I went from ancient views from Judaism to other ancient cultures to more modern cultures that within the last 100 years and then again us now and what's what's interesting is that there are subcultures as well that would view one way or the other and many subcultures like we are familiar with today would view suicide as sin an unforgivable sin and so if you remember in Genesis chapter 9 I want you to read that passage with me because this is where um, even Judaism some of the rabbis would teach this, let alone uh, quote-unquote Protestant churches with regard to suicide. Of course, Exodus 20 and verse 13 is thou shalt not kill. Okay, so that one's a very obvious example that has been used with regard to, well, that you should not kill, so therefore if you're taking your life, you're killing, you're murdering yourself, and so therefore that's sin, and now you don't have a way of repenting. There's another theological view of this, and so because you cannot repent, you're lost forever. It's an unforgivable and unpardonable sin. So there's that. Then after the flood, when God creates a new covenant with Noah, it's come off the ark, here's what is said in verse 5. And this is where the Judaizing rabbis would take this passage and refer it back to those who commit suicide and deal with a view of suicide that would say that when you die, you don't have the typical funeral rites that everyone else is afforded. Okay? So this is the reason why I'm bringing this up. So verse 5. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require from it and from the hand of man. And so if there was a shedding of blood, a.k.a. your own, then it needs to be reckoned with. And so as a result, even from the very beginning... Suicide was sin. That's the way the rabbis would view it. To break it down further, and as time had evolved, and so that these are now modern views that rabbis teach in Judaism, you have two categories of suicide, right? One is where someone is in their right mind, then suicide is wrong, and you're not afforded the funeral rites that everyone else is. But because of the modern views where um, depression, as the discussion is this morning, is dealt with as a mental illness, the thought is you cannot be in your right mind when you commit suicide. And because you're not in your right mind, you're okay. And so because you're okay, you are afforded the rights of a Jew having their funeral. So that's a subculture, right? You go outside of subculture, um, you have what's called altruistic suicides. What it means is, 
I'm taking the life, I'm taking my own life for the betterment of my family or my tribe or my society. Okay? So here's many cultures that take place. And this is changing now as, as our cultures around the world gets more quote-unquote modernized. But the culture is like this. My husband has died and I am very poor. And my community is very poor. For me to live would be such a huge burden on me that I'm likely going to die from starvation. And so I take my life. Or that my being alive is such a huge burden to the rest of my tribe, the rest of my community, that I take my life. That's an altruistic form of suicide. It is that if I die, I'm not a burden to my community, and so this is what I'm doing. These are not things that, not unlike things that we have been dealing with in our own country, right? Think of Dr. Kevorkian. Think of people in, in wanting to commit suicide or have someone else take their life on their behalf with euthanasia. So these are discussions that are not unlike what we have, but that's what we're talking about, these altruistic ones. India, clear example of this culture. Or the Japanese, seppuku, right? Remember a warrior? And a warrior is, you know, you, you, you're in battle, and now you are mortally wounded, and you don't want the enemy to take you as to get information or to humble you before, you know, their people and before they actually kill you. And so it was an honorable thing that you take your life. Or if you dishonored yourself and or your family for whatever reason outside of a warrior's death, they would do seppuku, which is, I don't want to get into the graphic with our children, but that was a form of suicide. And so it was a, a warrior's type suicide. It was one that was quote unquote noble. And what's interesting is many of the ancient Jews, going back to the two categories of suicide that they viewed, the one where you're um, in your right mind um, and one where you are taking your life in the distress of Saul. So if you go to a passage like 1 Samuel chapter 31 where Saul is going to go onto his own sword, um, the view was that you're under such duress and you don't want to fall into the hand of your enemies that you finish your mortally wounded life by taking it. That's a picture. And not getting into debates as far as it, was it Saul himself or was it his armor bearer that took his life and all that. But the point being is that that was the mindset. And the rabbis viewed his suicide as an honorable suicide. Right? So that was their view. So what I'm saying is if we go further along in society... Our views as a nation right now or as a culture right now won't always look like what it is right now for us. We fit a segment within our country that has a view, generally speaking, that is negative toward suicide, but that is changing. It is getting more positive toward suicide, and there are people that are upset on both sides. That's where we are as a society for all the right and wrongness of it. But that brings us back to the whole, what brings us to that suicide? And that is when we're talking about mental illness or what we're speaking about specifically about depression. And while the sermon itself cannot deal with clinical depression, because that's beyond my ability, what we can do is we can actually see whether it's through the Bible scriptures that we could look at, which we're not going to look at all these scriptures, just note them, and you can study them on your own, and look at life itself, right? 
scriptures refer to Job in a manner that would qualify as someone who would be depressed. Scriptures look at David's life when, when his life was being sought by his enemies and his enemies sometimes within his own household to the Philistines and whoever. He was in a state of depression. Or Elijah when he feels all alone, depressed. And, and when we go outside the scriptures, whether it's the life of Judas and looking at his context of, of his taking of his life or other, other passages that we could be looking at, we can kind of relate to, to a greater or lesser degree because we live lives too, right? We all have our own life experiences. And in this room, even Brad said it, I think Wednesday night or I think it was Wednesday night when we were doing our study. Brad was mentioning how, you know, in our congregation, we struggle with mental illness as well. I mean, it's like, as I put in the bulletin article, it's the elephant in the room. It's like you can talk about other people, but when you actually start bringing it close to home, then it gets a little uncomfortable. But that's a reality. Even if we did not know a single person in our congregation, if we were to do it from a statistical standpoint, statistics would demand that we have it here. But we don't need statistics because we have brethren who have opened vulnerably up to their struggles with it. And sometimes, again, how we react is very, very important. And so we're not necessarily dealing with dealing or having to deal with clinical depression because we all struggle with depression in some form or level to a lesser or greater degree. And I mentioned to you, up until three years ago, I mean, I'd been sad. There are times when I've been sad. I don't ever felt like I'd ever gone through depression. And one of the things, and I'll share this, I don't know if I shared it with, with Richard or not, but I'll share it now. Um, one of the things that to be a donor, a kidney donor, that you go through when you're in the process of a candidacy for it is a psych evaluation. And I was sat down with the surgery team and one of the things that was asked of me was my mental state. And I was as clear as I can be, I was like, I'm good. And they said, the thing is that, that many donors go through a form of depression. Not everyone, but a lot of them do for, for one reason or another. That's my first experience. When I was in bed 24-7 for about eight weeks, my mind went to dark places that it never had been to before. And I remember one day around those times of those eight weeks, Jordan, there you are. Jordan says, Mitch, how are you doing? And of course, you know, the answer is, yeah. All right. And he looks in my eyes, slows down. He says, Mitch, how are you doing? And like right now, I got a little teary-eyed. I'm like, eh, it's hard. I'd never been in a place that had darkness. And by the way, I'm not saying it because it wasn't worth it. I'm so glad. I thank God for the opportunity. And I'd do it again in a heartbeat. But it's, it's just something that I'd never been through. And if I fast forward again to nine months ago when I was going through my whole heart thing and I was in bed 24 hours a day for four weeks, it got even worse. And so 
I've not experienced what I would refer to as clinical depression, but it was the first moments that I've ever experienced any kind of depression. And I've known family members and friends that have said, I struggle with depression, and others who have said, I struggle with clinical depression. So the question is, you know, we know these things happen. We see it in the Bible. We see it in real life. What do we do about it? I mean, really, isn't that what the whole purpose of preaching God's word is to bring hope and salvation? And, and in a very practical way, while we don't have typical sermons that deal with mental illness, are there not correlations that take place in the scripture where people are begging for deliverance? And isn't, whether it be depression or any other mental illness, isn't there a deliverance that people are wanting in the name of walking with God? The answer is yes. And sometimes the way we answer these questions, while intending to be good and helpful, if we're not careful, they bring more harm. Here's what I mean by that. Remember Job's friends? In the book of Job, we've studied Job, remember? And his friends were telling Job, Job, here's your problem. And Job was like, man, you don't know me at all. And you call yourself friends. Right? All you have to do to get over your depression or your mental illness is you need to snap out of it. Let that sink in. Especially ask anyone that is struggling with mental illness Tell them that and tell you if, if, what, if they were to be completely honest with you, some of them, how they would want to react when they hear it. It's not good. It's not. You may actually have physical violence upon you. No joke. That's what they would want to react with. Just snap out of it. Pray more. I've known individuals personally with various mental illnesses that said, Mitch, I've been praying and praying and praying. How can I pray more? I'm praying as diligently as I can because I don't like what is going on in my mind. But that's what we'll hear from someone who has no clue but thinks they have the right answer. And mind you, the intentions are good. The intentions are well-meaning. But these are some of the, the things that we would say to one another. You need to repent more. Right? That's the reason why it hasn't left you yet. You haven't put your trust in God. You haven't, you haven't repented of whatever sin it is. And I remember one as a, as a completely different circumstance, but it was along the lines of what I need to do by someone who didn't know my life. Right? Bad back problems over the years, over the last 25 plus years. And I went to see a chiropractor after I couldn't walk for a few weeks. And I remember specifically the chiropractor says, you know why you're having such pain in your back? You're living in sin. That's what I was told. And he was not joking. I could not. This was in North Atlanta, by the way, for our friends in Atlanta area. Uh, and, it, and it was a very good chiropractor as far as his chiropractic work. I wasn't sure about his other diagnosis. Here's one I have used myself because I thought that to be the best thing. And I still think it to be a good, helpful thing, but yet not understanding always. Go and serve others. I think it's great advice personally, but tell that to someone who's emotionally paralyzed to help when they cannot, they're not in a season 
of ability. It's like me telling someone who is actually physically paralyzed, get up. Go and help someone. Telling someone who has, this is the, the typical um, response to these questions, tell someone who is going through cancer, stop having cancer. You see, these are things that some of us that have never experienced this pain, it's hard for us to understand. But to someone who's going through it, they get, they get these points very, very clearly. And it's not the most helpful things, even if the intention is well-meaning. And so here's the thing. How do we share their burdens? Because while the context of share one another's burdens in Galatians chapter 6 Right? Remember, you who are spiritual, restore the one who is transgressing in the spirit of gentleness. I'm paraphrasing Galatians 6 verse 1. And in verse 2, right, share each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I don't know if Paul even was thinking along the lines of mental illness. And so this extrapolating of the immediate context may be, may be broad. But, but we do need to be sharing each other's burdens. The question is how? What can we do? And therein lies where, because those of us that have not experienced um, forms of mental illness, remember, this is a, still a smaller part of our population, although that population continues to explode in this country. What do we do? How do we help them if we don't understand? Well, number one, you, you can actually be with someone, just being in their presence. And I'll tell you why. And I've heard this too many times. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who struggle with mental illness, struggle with depression, who are all alone in the middle of a room. Someone sitting next to you possibly is going through depression or some form of mental illness, and they have no other one as a friend in their life. We think, but we're the body of Christ, we're the church. We are one. We're all together. We're helping each other. Not always. There are fringes. There are cracks. And people, including those in the body of Christ, can fall through these cracks, are on the fringe, and are on the outs, even if they're in our midst. And so that's where the sermon from a few weeks ago about being able to show our love and the risk that it takes. And Julie had a great post yesterday. If you saw it, I mean, I highly amen her post. And it was like life-changing life -changing events only take place, and I'm paraphrasing the, the thing, um, only take place when you get out of your comfort zone. You cannot have life-changing events take place inside your comfort zone. And that's the whole point, right? So be with them. Pray with them if you're going to be with them. Pray for them if you're not in their presence. I mean, I think that's an easy one that we can be doing, praying for them, but praying with them. Or we who are spiritual, we who are healthy, we who have the ability because our minds are in a good place, we can serve them in some capacity. But again, it means we get out of our comfort zone if our comfort zone is where I don't want to be in their presence. And so these are things that I think are very, very key for us if we're going to help and here's the bottom line, and this is the whole purpose of the sermon this morning, and that is if we're going to work towards solutions, then let's work towards solutions, right? 
So we may not be professional mental health counselors and what have you, but you know, we can encourage our brethren. And Phil even made a prayer this morning with regard to the, the monies that we have for evangelism and also for benevolence. That's where benevolence comes into play, right? We've got the financial means. We can help brethren that do not have the financial means. We can help in that regard among other ways, right? But because we want to help, and then there are a number of brethren that want to help in saying, Mitch, I want to be that person to help, but I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And that leads us to this point right here. We got to take the elephant in the room and deal with it. Or we just continue not dealing with it, right? One of the two. Deal with it or not deal with it. Solutions never come with, I hope it goes away, I hope it goes away. If he or she just leaves here, we don't have this problem. We might want that in some cases. Things get easier in some cases when that happens, right? It's always harder if someone who is struggling this way continues to stay in our midst. What do you want, brethren? And some of the answers that we give, if I can be frank, is, well, if they stay, I leave. Is that the way we answer it? Because I don't want this to affect me. Brethren, think about your walk with God. Think about the love that God has for us and that he delivers us. And how he's transforming us to be a form of Christ-like followers who also provide hope and deliverance for those that they have physical contact with. That's what happens when we're Christ followers. And so I share these things with you from a standpoint of beginning to have open communication. And that may start maybe like in the small groups that we have. It may be where some brethren were saying, hey, after that sermon, I want to have a Bible study or I want to have just a discussion. I don't have to do about Bible study. It's going to be at my house. I'm going to do it every week and maybe we can take turns. It, it all starts somewhere grassroots wise. But it begins to happen. And pretty soon it, it snowballs into a bigger discussion, right? If you guys remember, for those of you who are about three or four years ago, we actually had a quarter where we were dealing with some of this and with some of the best discussions during those weeks. A lot of brethren that never would open their mouths in Bible studies began opening their mouths and their hearts in our discussions. If you guys remember that, it was a very positive time for us. And I pray that we can have more of those moments. I don't know what the answers are. I can tell you what we can do, and we can do that right there. Jimmy Frazier's famous words, communication. And that's what we need. Now, beyond the scope of that, I'm going to tell you this. To, to actually say whether or not Jesus takes away all your problems would be foolish on my part. Because the evidence is we still have it by those who love God and walk with him. But I know that when we leave this world full of sin and sorrow, by that moment, truly, we will face 
eternity and we will have a passage like Romans chapter 8 come to fruit. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's the hope that can be given. Despite this side of heaven, wherein lies that just because we are children of God doesn't necessarily mean everything turns good. We know that's not the case. We just see it in our lives. We still struggle with life, right? We love God. We still have marriages that are difficult. We still have parent-child relationships that are difficult. Sibling relationships, difficult. Relationships with my neighbor or at the workplace, absolutely horrendous at times. And I'm a person who loves God. It still happens. And so I'll finish with this. This is the invitation. Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus never said, there is no yoke, there is no burden. It's still there. But compared to the weight of what you would face without him and compared to the eternal consequences of being without him his yoke is easy his burden is light and he has this i can say with with confidence he has not for every single person who's ever come through his kingdom's door he has healed many and he will continue to heal many and he will use his children you and me to do this because we are his hands and we are his feet. We are his heart. And so the invitation is for someone who is struggling, who's not a child of God, to become one. To die to yourself. It may not wash away anxiety or depression, PTSD, or any other thing that we could speak on. But your sins will be washed away. <laughs> and the eternal promise is there for you to have hope for eternal life. That's an invitation that is still very, very good news. There's no better news for someone in that situation. And brethren, you may be here, as we've had over the last few weeks, a number of brethren who have said, I need your prayers. I covet your prayers. I'm desperate for your prayers on my behalf. We'll pray for you. So the invitation is yours to be buried with Christ and to rise and walk in newness of life to ask for the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ here. Why don't you do that as together we stand and sing?